Welcome to the God Solutions Show, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I am so glad that you're tuned in for the third and final part of our Dr. Paul Copan interview. It'll be a great morning, and we're going to conclude the three-part interview with him. It's going to be exciting. I'm so glad that you're listening. I hope that you'll take what you hear today and that you'll share it with your friends because this evidence needs to get out there. It'll be great stuff. Anyway, if you missed the last two weeks, or any weeks before that for that matter, go to godsolutionshow.com and look at the past shows tab. We have four and a half years of God Solution shows uploaded there. You can get any of them, including interviews with some of the biggest Christian apologists in the world today. And so go to godsolutionshow.com and check out some of our past shows. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Paul Copan. If you've listened the last couple weeks... You're familiar, no doubt, with Dr. Paul Copan. Whether or not you've heard, if you'd like to hear more about him, you could always go to Amazon.com and just check out some of his books. He's written a ton of great books. I'll share some of those with you in a minute. But let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Paul Copan. Dr. Paul Copan is a Christian theologian, philosopher, apologist, and author. He received his Ph.D. in philosophy of religion from Marquette University, He's currently a professor at the Palm Beach Atlantic University, where he holds the Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics. He's written numerous books, like I said. He's written over 25 of them. He's also contributed to journal articles and journals and other different books and compilations of essays and all sorts of things. In fact, that was the first time that I read Dr. Paul Copan, was in a compilation of essays that you can buy as a book titled Contending with Christianity's Critics. He co-edited that with William Lane Craig. I would encourage you to pick it up. He's also worked with and served as the president for the Evangelical Philosophical Society. So you can find out more about Dr. Paul Copan at paulcopan.com, and you can spell that P-A-U-L-C-O-P-A-N.com. Again, that's paulcopan.com. Some of his books include Is God a Moral Monster? Did God Really Command Genocide? When God Goes to Starbucks, A Guide to Everyday Apologetics, True for You But Not for Me, The Gospel in the Marketplace of Ideas, That's Just Your Interpretation, Responding to Skeptics Who Challenge Your Faith, Loving Wisdom, Christian Philosophy of Religion, An Introduction to Biblical Ethics, and How Do You Know You're Not Wrong? Again, go to Amazon or wherever you buy books and get some of Dr. Paul Copan's books. They're great. All right, well, we're going to pick up with the third part of our interview with Dr. Paul Copan, I'll be talking with him about the charge of genocide. If you're not familiar with this, some of the skeptics, some of the atheists, would say that some of the conquest of Canaan in the Old Testament and other various passages seem genocidal. So they would make the claim against the Christian that the Christian God is a God that endorses genocide. Of course, we know this isn't true. And I'm going to be asking Dr. Paul Copan about that charge and many other things on the show today. So welcome to the third part of the interview with Dr. Paul Copan. Here we begin talking about the charge of genocide. Back to the charge of genocide. Matthew Flanagan and I have written a book called uh, Did God Really Command Genocide? in which we go into a lot of detail on this. And there is, you know, we argue that there is a, a lot of hyperbolic language that is used that you will see the language of um, uh, of, you know, we utterly destroyed them, we left alive nothing that breathed, and so forth. And then you see, you know, uh, you know, chapters later that those same people who have been utterly destroyed are, you know, seem to be 
moving about and uh, there's no uh, no seeming contradiction in the mind of the author who is ha- holding these two things side by side um, there's uh, you know so I, we go through the the Old Testament and and highlight this uh, God himself says he is going to utterly destroy Judah in uh, in the book of Jeremiah 25 9 he says he's using the same word I'll utterly destroy them but you get to the end of the book and well Judah is not utterly destroyed they're going to exile uh, at least uh, some of them are and uh, most of them stay behind in the land but uh, but again it is that kind of hyperbolic language that was common in the ancient Near East that does not have the uh, you know that people would understand stand kind of like in our own day that this is hyperbolic as we would say well we totally slaughtered that team uh, we we annihilated them uh, no one thinks that that was actually taking place you also have the primary command of driving out the Canaanites it was to create a, a certain theological instability for the Canaanites whose gods were presumably in charge of that land and so uh, Israel was commanded to drive them out uh, if you're driving them out you're not killing them uh, you know Adam and Eve were driven out of the uh, out of the Eden Cain was driven out uh, of, of you know where he was staying, um, uh, you know Saul drove out David from his presence. Again, there's the driving out does not at all connote uh, killing them, but people uh, left themselves in harm's way if they would stick around, uh, given the um, you know given Israel's presence in in the land of Canaan. And what's interesting too is that you have as the as the as Israelites are coming toward Canaan. There is a very public. There's very public evidence that God is with them. You see, for one thing, uh, and the Canaanites themselves recognize that God is powerful. That he, that he was the one who trounced the gods of the Egyptians through the plagues. That he, that he brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea, and the uh, and, and uh, the Egyptian army, uh, you know, perished. Um, the people recognize this, and there were miracles that continued on in the land of Canaan while the, uh, or sorry, in the wilderness while the Israelites were wandering about, and there was this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. I mean, this, these sorts of things should alert people who are uh, skeptical about the uh, the God of the Israelites uh, that you know, maybe there's something going on here. Maybe I need to pay attention here. Uh, there's something very sobering and serious about this uh, this God that that I need to pay attention to. So there was certainly warning. The people of Canaan knew about this sort of a thing, and uh, and and so you have, you know, for the the command regarding the Canaanites, you, it's also accompanied by remarkable signs and wonders. So even if there's a kind of a skeptical person saying, I don't know about this, you know, uh, you know driving out the Canaanites, well, you have God's remarkable divine approval of Moses and his uh, and. Uh, you see that, for example, in Korah's rebellion, the ground swallows up uh, 250 people who are uh, opposing uh, Moses as a, a prophet uh, of God, and, uh, and and so you see one after another just these signs and wonders that are being performed. So it's not as though God just told quote told Moses, um, you know, to to command the killing of the or driving out of the Canaanites. Um, there's actually there are actually signs and wonders that are that are accompanying this. So that if anybody has any questions about um, the source of this, it's not as though he's just saying, "Oh, God told me this at a burning bush, and no one else, no one else is there." No, th- there is public affirmation, public confirmation, uh, and so people who say, "Well, oh, God told me to do this," and they they talk about some 
some you know terrible thing that they are about to do. Uh, God told me to do this. Well, do you have the kind of credentials that Moses had? Do you have the kinds of signs and wonders that uh, that accompanied Moses uh, Moses commands? Uh, it's a, it's altogether different. And those are some of the things that uh, Matt Flanagan and I talk about uh, in our book. But uh, but I think you know in large part understanding the nature of the uh, language of uh, hyperbole of exaggeration. Uh, that was understood very well in the ancient Near East. A lot of you know ancient Near Eastern war texts had that same sort of language of uh, of utter destruction. Even though we know from uh, history and archaeology and so forth that uh, that when it says they were utterly destroyed or turned to ash, uh, there is nothing like that that happened. Um, so so again, that's something to keep in mind as well. So I don't want to go into a lot of detail here, but it would, would simply refer to uh, my co-authored book with Matthew Flanagan called Did God Really Command Genocide? Now, a lot of people are going to say, doesn't this fly in the face of biblical inerrancy? And what we'd want to remind them of is the principle of hermeneutics tells us that we want to read the text as it was written and with the intention of the original author. And in that context, we see this all over, correct? I read Flanagan's contribution to the book True Reason, where he actually talked about some of these things that you're talking about. So I would refer people back to those works. And then, actually, I think he mentioned in that chapter, if I'm not mistaken, in True Reason, that in Judges, right, we see all these people groups that in Joshua were supposedly completely wiped out. In other words, we know that this is a figure of speech because in the very same text, they exist a mere few years later, correct? That's correct. Yeah, in fact, um, it, it is concurrent with the time of Joshua. Um, you know, it said, we read in Joshua that um, the rent land had rest on every side. Um, but even at the end of Joshua, you see um, that Joshua himself is saying that, you know, there's a lot of work to do. You know, there are a lot of uh, nations that still need to be driven out. And then we get to Judges chapter 1, which actually, you know, we, at the end of Joshua, we see that Joshua, Joshua dies. But then in Judges 1 and 2, we have kind of a, a stepping back in, in, in um, the, you know, and then we see Joshua's death recounted again in chapter 2. Um, and so, so there, it, it's clear that there's a textual connection uh, between Joshua and uh, Judges 1 and 2. Um, but uh, what, what is interesting is that you do have repeatedly in chapters 1 and 2 um, mention that the Israelites could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. These Canaanites are still entrenched, and, uh, and, and they can't be driven out. So, so there is that kind of language that is being uh, utilized. And uh, that is, you know, there's no contradiction seen by the, uh, by the author of Judges who, you know, who has mentioned this, in fact, uh, is no doubt familiar with, uh, with, with Joshua, um, but yet is, uh, is saying, well, this is really more the realistic picture of what was taking place on the ground. Yes, Joshua does use hyperbole, um, but this is more um, you know, the, the, the reality of the situation. Uh, if you're look, talking in literal terms, uh, that uh, that these Canaanites were entrenched in it, and it, it would eventually take about, uh, from what we know archaeologically, about 200 years before the uh, the name uh, the Lord Yahweh uh, became the dominant national name uh, for the you know for Israel's deity. Um, you know, so so it was a uh, quite a while before the transition took place and, and really the kind of battling that was uh, was engaged in was more like um, as uh, the 
um, archaeologist Kenneth Kitchen says it was more like disabling raids. Uh, you see the the you know, places like Jericho, um, you know, a place like Jericho might be destroyed, but the other places that were uh, were attacked were more like disabling raids. And then the Israelites would go back to their base camp at Gilgal. It wasn't as though they just you know stormed these places and took over, and the people moved inside these uh, these. Uh, uh, these cities, which were actually more like um, fortresses or citadels, um, that that was uh, that was the uh, you know there like there was a royal treasury where they kept grain and you had a the military leader and and usually um, you know a you know a hundred or two hundred uh, soldiers that would be the first line of defense if the uh, the people in the hill country would be attacked. So so again, there's a there's a, a lot more to to fill in. Uh, these these gaps from you know history from archaeology and so forth, um, but uh, but again the book talks about some of those things as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the God Solution Show. Go to GodSolutionShow.com to find out more about the show and to hear our past shows. We're talking with Dr. Paul Copan, world-renowned Christian apologist, and I'm glad that you're tuned in. This is the third part of our interview with Dr. Paul Copan. You can get the other parts at GodSolutionShow.com under past shows. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy the last part of this interview with Dr. Paul Copan. I always mention to people that when we look at the conquest of Canaan, we see specific commands by God concerning this one group of people or these few groups of people in this one area at this one time. Mm-hmm. Whereas in some other religions, we see general commands towards violence and general commands for all people, all time, all places. So there's... there. We're comparing apples to oranges for people that try to make the case that Christianity endorses uh, violence and all these things like that. Now, what I find interesting about Dawkins is he criticizes this supposed genocide, but he's totally okay with abortion. I just had to throw that in, Mm -hmm. right? He's totally okay with millions of babies each year on this planet today being killed, and he has no problem with that, but somehow in the ancient world, again, we see this double standard, I think, in Dawkins' worldview. Mm -hmm. Nope. Sure. Yeah, and you also see that with, um, I mean, Sam Harris and uh, also Christopher Hitchens. You know, they talk about, uh, you know, in, in uh, there's a book by uh, William Cavanaugh about um, uh, violence and religion, and uh, and he um, quotes extensively um, these new atheists like Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, who actually are endorsing kind of a preemptive um, killing. Of Muslims um, who are inherently dangerous and so forth. Uh, so here they are um, decrying, quote, genocide in the Old Testament, but yet here they are espousing it uh, for the modern world. Uh, so, so that is that is quite ironic. Uh, another thing to uh, to keep in mind is this: when people accuse religion of doing this or that, we have to ask the question: What do you actually mean by religion? And it gets back to that whole worldview question. Scholars themselves are very uh, much at odds on uh, definitions of religion. I mean, uh, there are uh, no one, you know, uh, one religion expert, <laughs> um, uh, Martin Marty at the University of Chicago, says that there are I think 27 different definitions of religion, and scholars will never agree upon them. Well, if this is the case, I mean, what what are we actually criticizing when we're when we're talking about religion? Um, and can't atheism? be itself very um, 
hostile? Uh, can it be totalitarian and oppressive and so forth? Uh, why is it religion that gets singled out? Or, you know, and why is it that atheism is often glossed over when it comes to atrocities done in the name of atheism? So, so I think it's more helpful to talk about worldviews. Are there some worldviews that are more, um, uh, you know, that, that, that tend toward violence because of the particular tenets within that worldview? And, uh, you know, and, and we can say, well, if human beings are, you know, don't have intrinsic dignity and worth, that we've not been made in the image of God, say, uh, if we're simply material beings uh, that don't have um, worth, uh, intrinsic worth, then, you know, you, you, then there are certain consequences that come with that. There are certain permissions, um, you know, ethical permissions that come with that if, if there is, uh, you know, if, if it is, there is no anchoring of, uh, of humans having, you know, dignity and worth. Uh, so, so again, there are, there are those sorts of questions that need to be explored as well. Well, and I mean, Dawkins would suggest things like removing children from Christian parents because it's child abuse to teach your child Christianity. So, I mean, he would come up with these extremely unethical views of reality based in his worldview. It, it's exactly what you're saying. I think that your worldview really determines where you go in life, and yeah. we see an atheistic worldview poorly directs someone's yeah. choices in life. Indeed, and it is one of the things, I, I wrote a book, uh, co-authored a book called An uh, Introduction to Biblical Ethics, and we actually address you know, Richard Dawkins, who you know makes that uh, charge that uh, you know, of, of child abuse, children growing up in, quote, religious homes and Christian homes in particular, that this is uh, tantamount to child abuse. Well, the problem with his viewpoint is when you look at the statistics, those who grow up, you know, kids who grow up in more secular homes, um, who, you know, aren't given a lot of, you know, often given a lot of ethical guidance, um, you know, tend to fall into pornography, uh, drugs, um, you know, uh, you know, Premarital sex and, uh, and 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 all that goes with that, um, and uh, you know, it tend to be more um, uh, more anti-law, uh, anti-authoritarian, you know, anti-authority and so forth. Whereas when you look at those who are committed Christians, um, you know, in in this study that was done by Christian Smith, you see that they tend to be much more respectful, um, you know, much less likely to get involved in criminal activity and so forth. So really, when you look at the statistics, it's it's actually, you know, if you go Richard Dawkins' view, if you go raising your children according to Richard Dawkins' own worldview, that's actually more like child abuse than uh, than uh, teaching your children uh, as uh, to be faithful Christians in this world. But then. We have the same thing again. We've talked about it, not just a dog on Dawkins, but the worldview isn't based on the evidence and following the evidence. It's mm -hmm. kind of basing itself on its own assumptions and going wherever it feels right. So we get back to this, I feel like this is right, so that's right. I don't care what the evidence says. It's yeah. kind of a bad way to go. Okay, so we're coming towards the close of this interview, and you've written a lot on other passages in the Old Testament and things like that. Does God condone slavery? I guess both Old and New Testament passages might seem to imply that. I know you probably don't have time to talk about it. Should we just refer listeners to your work on that? Well, I suppose a couple of things might be worth uh, saying here. Um, that uh, one, when you talk about slavery, uh, most people think of 
the South, the antebellum South, uh, when we're talking about slavery. And, and it's unfortunate that the term slave is used. I mean, the word slavery is, uh, you know, I mean, it, you know, or the word slave is often translated, uh, you know, the word eved in the in the Hebrew, and the the word avad in you know as the verb form, the cognate. Um, you know, these words are really you know very typically neutral. Um, yes, people were you know quote slaves in Egypt, but um, you know even the term in Exodus uh, about the Egyptians themselves, they were called um, Pharaoh's slaves. Um, you know, I think it uh, it's better to use the term servant because it uh, you know usually what you're do- dealing with is indentured servitude, where you serve for a period of time. And then once you are done with your term of service, then you're free and uh, you're like an, you know, an ordinary citizen that doesn't have that contractual obligation anymore. But, but again, uh, you know, when, you're, when you're, the term slave is introduced, in fact, the King James Version didn't have um, in the Old Testament any reference to, uh, to slaves except in, in, in one part. And it wasn't even actually um, in the text itself, but it was kind of an editorial um, uh, word inserted. Uh, but, but again, why is it, it's kind of ironic that a lot of modern translations, though, have inserted slave repeatedly, and given the negative um, associations with slavery in the modern world, um, you know, again after uh, after the King James Version uh, came out in, in 1611, uh, after you've had modern slavery to deal with, then you've had the Civil War and the abolition of slavery and so forth, and all the sensitivities that go with it. Why would you translate a kind of neutral word? You know, even Moses and Joshua are called a servant of the Lord, using that same term. Uh, you know, why are they called servant of the Lord? This is um, you know a, a positive title. Uh, it, it's a it's an honorific title. It's not something that's negative. Uh, so so the often you know the kind of the neutrality of this word uh, that is often you know it, it is often lost or obscured by modern day translations. So that's one misleading. Uh, um, cons- you know, one misleading issue um, that uh, you know, the, namely Bible translations that confuse the matter uh, very significantly. Um, you know, I, I I do address uh, a number of these issues in in the book. Um, uh, you know, is God a moral monster? And I'm also doing some further writing on this. Uh, you know, on on the slavery issue. But uh, uh, but I would uh, I would certainly encourage people to even consider the New Testament. Some people say, "Oh, Jesus didn't do away with slavery; he condoned it." No, Jesus was one who was opposed to all manner of oppression. He came to, as, as Luke four says, to free people who were oppressed, uh, to bring release to those who were imprisoned, uh, you know, those who were uh, captive. Uh, you know, he sought to uh, undermine uh, any oppressive social structure that existed. He came to proclaim freedom to those who are captives. And Paul himself says that there is neither slave nor free in Christ. Uh, He advocated, if you can be freed from slavery in 1 Corinthians 7, to, to do so. Um, Paul condemned kidnapping in 1 Timothy 1, which, of course, is the basis of uh, modern slave trade. Uh, you know, you have Paul himself telling master and slave to greet one another with a holy kiss in Romans 16:16 16, and elsewhere. You had churches where slave and master were in the same congregation, and to greet one another with a holy kiss meant a, a family belonging. Uh, in Romans 16 itself, where Paul uses that, uh, com- gives that command, um, there are two slave names mentioned, uh, Andronicus and Urbanus, 
common slave names, and here they're called fellow workers with Paul, you know, uh, fellow uh, you know, prisoners with Paul. Here they are, ones who are sharing the, the gospel work with Paul, and Paul considers them equals in, in the task of, uh, of proclaiming the gospel. Uh, also, you know, even in homes where you have masters and slaves, when, you, when they were believers, they were sitting at the same table. They would have a meal together, and then they would share in the Lord's Supper together. Uh, this was something that was revolutionary in, in the Roman Empire. Paul is adv- advocating, uh, you know, meals that, that, that um, you know, share, the sharing of, uh, of which um, meant equality, uh, meant family belonging. Uh, so Paul is at, at a number of points actually undermining the institution of slavery through these, um, uh, through this kind of, uh, yeah, subversive, these subversive acts of greeting one another with a holy kiss, of sharing the Lord's Supper together, master and slave together. So, so again, you, you see something that going on that is quite revolutionary, that is not uh, an, an embrace of the status quo, which is what the arguments often uh, are, are uh, given, are made, these arguments are often made uh, as a charge against um, the kind of the, uh, the status quo uh, acceptance uh, in, in the New Testament. So anyway, there's just a few, those, those just a few thoughts. Thank you so much. It's just great to have some light shed on that. So anyway, I know I've taken a ton of your time, and we're extremely grateful for it. We could go on the rest of the day, I'm sure. But just in closing, are there any last comments that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, I just want to say thanks for the opportunity to be on your program. And um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that uh, my resources, uh, you know, things that I've written, have been a help to, uh, to you and to others. And um, you know, with the Lord's help, hope to continue to do uh, more of the same. And, uh, and again, thanks for having me. Well, yeah, and honestly, we couldn't be doing what we're doing if you and others like you weren't doing what you're doing. So thank you for equipping us to get the message out to an audience that needs to hear that the Christian worldview really is based in fact and based in reality, and we don't have to cower as Christians. We can actually walk confidently based on the truth that we have in God's Word. Indeed. Thank you so much, Dr. Copan, for being on the God Solution Show. No problem. Glad to be with you. Thanks so much, Nate. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Paul Copan this morning. Again, that was the last part of the interview. You can get all three parts of the interview at godsolutionshow.com under past shows. Next week, we'll be interviewing Greg Kokel. I hope that you'll be listening for that. It's going to be an incredible show. I'm excited. I really appreciate some of Kokel's work, and I'm glad that We'll get to hear from him next week on the God Solution Show. So keep tuning in and keep letting people know about the show as well. Well, everything that Dr. Paul Copan talked about today points us in the direction of Jesus Christ. And we can know with confidence that Jesus really is who he says he is and that the Bible is accurate in its description of him and in the promises it makes to us about everyone who will put their faith and trust in him. See, we can know with certainty that Jesus really did live on this earth and he really did die for your sins, and the historical evidence is overwhelming that he rose again from the dead. We can trust him with our lives now and our eternity in the future. If you've never gotten to that point of trusting God where you really come to that that fork in the road where you decide, I am going to put my faith in him and not in myself, you can do that this morning. The Bible says that God loves you and that You're separated from him as a sinner. But the Bible says Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him can begin a relationship with him. If you've never taken that step, I would encourage you to do it this morning. You can do that right now. You can put your faith in Jesus right now, expressing that through prayer. 
You could verbalize that faith through prayer. You could say, Jesus, I really do believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins, and that you rose again to give me new life. I ask you to come into my life to forgive my sins, to make me the kind of person you want me to be, and to be my Savior and my Lord. The Bible says that if you took that step today, if you genuinely put your faith and trust in Christ today, that you've been adopted into his family and that there's a party going on in heaven for you this very moment. If you did take that step today, please let me know. Go to godsolutionshow.com and use the contact form. I'd love to encourage you in your new walk with God. If you've been walking with God for a while, I would encourage you to share this show with your friends. See, many Christians are illiterate when it comes to defending their faith, and that's not okay. In fact, Scripture says in 1 Peter 3.15 that we need to be ready to give a defense for the faith that we have, for the hope that we have. So I would encourage you to share this show, get the word out, let people know about the God Solution Show, and start committing yourself to learning the answers that you're going to be faced with in an increasingly secular and hostile world. You could also help us get the word out by partnering with The God Solution Show. You can go to godsolutionshow.com to find out more about that. And we really could use your help in getting this message out. Well, I'm so thankful that you're listening to The God Solution Show. Every week I conclude the show saying that an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I believe that with everything in me, and I'm confident that the evidence points to the reality that we can really trust Christ with everything. We can trust him with our entire life. If you're a new believer, or if you've been walking with Christ your entire life, that goes for you. I hope that you'll continue walking strong with him. I hope that you'll visit a local church this morning. We have a list of them up at godsolutionshow.com. And I hope that you'll keep listening to The God Solution Show. Again, tune in next week for the interview with Greg Kokel. We'll talk to you then. Thanks so much, and have a wonderful afternoon. We're the world. We're the world. We're the world.